Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Moshe Wanunu. With our continuing coverage of the Israel-Hamas war in the Middle East, we are trying to feature voices from the region. I think all of you will enjoy this conversation today. It is with Khalil Sayeg. He is a Palestinian born and raised in Gaza. He would then go on to do schooling in Ramallah in the West Bank, most recently in the U.S., where he got his master's degree at American University. So he's got a variety of perspectives here. He's involved in a grassroots effort alongside an Israeli to work on long-term peace initiatives in the region. I thought it was a notable conversation at a time of war. Also, as somebody who was born and raised in Gaza, who has his entire family there right now seeking refuge in a church, I think he brings a really important, insightful perspective uh, to our coverage here. In our conversation, which is just over an hour, we had just so much to talk about. We discussed the war, the current situation on the ground, and the realities of life under Hamas. Uh, Sayeg is actually part of the small Christian community inside Gaza and feels very open about talking about how Hamas uses civilian infrastructure, what life has been like under their rule for 16 years. He goes into some details about friends who had tunnels dug underneath their homes at the same time. He talks openly and honestly about his experience with Israel, uh, where he feels Israel has made the wrong moves in dealing with Hamas, in dealing with the Palestinian issue. It's a very candid conversation. He talks about how he's been able to put himself in the shoes of Israelis for the first time, especially having grown up in Gaza, where his only experience with Israel was their air force bombing once in a while. Saig, as I mentioned, has a new initiative that he's working on where he's trying to get both sides to deal with their uncomfortable truths, that he believes that getting uncomfortable is the only way to achieve a long-term solution here. I think, again, you guys will really enjoy this conversation as we've been covering this war and would love your feedback over on the Instagram account. Please message us your thoughts. We've also put together a few of the highlights from this conversation in the Mo newsletter available at mo.news slash newsletter. Before we start, a reminder to consider joining Mo News Premium for early access to podcasts like this one, extra content on our audio stream, as well as on our members-only Instagram page. By joining Mo News Premium, it's also a way to support what we're doing here, independent journalism here at Mo News. You can get it for just $7 a month or $70 a year. That is two free months on the annual package. There's also a lifetime subscription option. You can check it all out over at mo.news slash premium. Again, so appreciate your support. It helps us put together conversations like this one. All right, with that, here's today's interview. All right, I'm so lucky to be joined here by Khalil Sayeg. He's a Palestinian born and raised in Gaza, educated in Ramallah uh, in the West Bank, now in the U.S., where he recently got his master's degree uh, from American University and is running a nonprofit with an Israeli that we'll get into in this conversation. Khalil, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Asher, for having me. Excited for our conversation. Yeah, Unfortunately, we talk at a time of war here. The entire world's attention is focused right now on the conflict as we speak here. I want to get to your story as someone who's um, from Gaza. But first, I want to ask, who currently is there uh, and how are they doing? Yeah, thank you for asking. Um, obviously, all my family is there. My parents are there, my siblings, um, my extended family also, my cousins, um, uh, my nephews. Um, so yeah, how they're doing, they're alive. And I'm thankful for that because to, to even be alive in Gaza right now is, is something that you should be thankful for. But on the other hand, it's the situation is very dire and it's really sad. And, uh, during 
at the beginning of the war, we lost our home. My family had to move and to stay at church there in Gaza. And until now, they're there and uh, the situation. Your family is, is from the northern part of Gaza? Well, this whole like notion of north and south, actually, it's a, it's a new thing that during this war appeared, right? Like it's the north usually is referred to as Beit Han or whatever. We are more or less uh, west of Gaza City center. And that's where we were, which historically, during any escalation between Israel and the Palestinians, uh, were considered one of the safest. But this time, the conflict is started from there because Israel decided to invade from, from the sea to move up to near uh, Shatit refugee camp and uh, Shifa uh, hospital. How are you communicating with your family? How often? And, and what has it been like? Because I understand there have been power outages and the cell phones have gone down at various times. Yeah, I'll try to talk to them every day. Uh, does it work every day? The cell phones um, uh, companies there is, has been down uh, due to, to the lack of fuel as well. Um, uh, so you got to keep trying calling on different phones, right? I mean, once you hold them, you just make sure they're okay. But sometimes I don't even, I mean, sometimes I couldn't catch, not catch them, but catch someone who's at the church from the, from the community, someone who I know, and he would tell me they are okay. And then I will feel peace of mind to continue my day. So are they, are they uh, seeking refuge? Are they living at the church right now? They are at the church, yeah. Got it. And what is life like there right now daily for them in terms of food and what they're doing on a daily basis? It's it's really difficult. It's uh, there is no really stores anymore. There is no really um, there is no hospitals that works in Gaza anymore um, in the north, like the quote unquote the northern part, right, at the Gaza City, and that's also difficult. So with food, uh, bakeries are completely destroyed. Something that is um, uh, crucial to understand that in the, in the Middle East and in the world in general. Bread is very important, so people eat bread almost every day, but then the, the, the bakeries are completely destroyed. So people bake their own bread at um, at home, but without fuel and gas, you have to do it on the wood, etc. So that's the difficulty there. I mean, they live as a community now, about 500 people who are discharged, they, they bake their own bread, they make their own food. And um, uh, they try to find water as much as, as possible and accessible. And um, it is really difficult. Um, it's not something that um, um, that anyone should be living through. How do you process it watching this war from America? Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah. A, that's a good question. I mean, I, I mean, is I, there a part of you that's like, I wish I was there, but I also feel lucky not to sure. be there? Yeah. No, for sure. I mean, listen, I... Since day one, I've been feeling the survival guilt, right? I've been feeling guilty for not being in Gaza. I've been feeling guilty that I'm apart from my family and that I can't feel what they're feeling in a, in a physical, literal sense. And also uh, feeling guilty because I feel like if I'm there, at least like I know what's going on. I'm with them. We're in unity, whatever, right? So, yeah, that's, that's the feeling. But on the other hand... I feel like uh, if I'm there, also their story wouldn't be told to the world because it couldn't be telling this story to the world. If I'm there, there's no way we can make up financially for what happened to us because in this just few weeks, we lost our home again. We lost our, 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 our shop. We lost all our property just like that really quickly. And there is no way 
to recover quickly in Gaza, as far as I'm concerned. So to me, at least outside, maybe there are ways of helping. Maybe there are ways of, 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 of working harder, working extra hours, and then pay back for that. So it's a conflict between both of these. But it's hard. It's hard to watch this tragedy um, uh, unfolding in front of my eyes, these crimes happening to to my family, extended friends, um, people I know that lost their lives and I couldn't see them. Uh, it's really draining, and it makes you makes you feel uh, hopeless, makes you feel useless, and it's that it's not a really good feeling. You mentioned your family staying at the church. You guys are Christians. Give us a sense, Khalil. You know, for for people who aren't familiar, how large is the Christian community in Gaza? Describe it for me and, and describe how, you know, they're particularly impacted here, given that, you know, the, the leadership now for more than a decade, there has been Hamas. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's a good question. I, the, the Christian community in Palestine goes all the way uh, back to 2000 years. There's been always continuation of Christian presence in, uh, in Palestine, including Gaza, which, by the way, has the third oldest church in the world, the Church of St. Perfurius, where I grew up to worship Greek Orthodox Church. Uh, the way we are impacted by this conflict has been really rough on the Christians because the Christians in 1948 were also displaced from their homes and lost their property, etc. When Hamas came to power in 2006, also the Christians found themselves on crossroad. All of a sudden, you had to deal with an illiberal Islamist regime that emphasizes the presence of their own understanding of Islam in the public square, something that for a Christian minority or any religious minority, wouldn't be as comfortable. And not because it's Islamist or Islam, but any sort of illiberal uh, religious um, party emphasizing these things on the ground would be uh, very difficult. So for the Christians, we find ourselves asking the question, what does it mean for us? So when we're talking about the Christian population in Gaza, we're talking about, is it a couple thousand people out of the two and a half million who live there? Well, we used to be about 4,000 people back in... um, 2000. Mm-hmm. Right now, we are talking about less than a thousand people, actually. There are about 800 people, um, majority of whom left after Hamas controlled Gaza, by the way. There was, I mean, obviously, it's hard to know what's the causation, right? Because on the one hand, it's Hamas and their Islamism and uh, authoritarian nature has pushed anyone who's not really. Um, Muslim to feel threatened and want to leave. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, it was also the Israeli siege or blockade that started at that time that destroyed businesses and uh, made it impossible for, for, for everyone to live normally, including Christians. I'd like to, you were born in the mid-90s in Gaza when um, it was still controlled by Israelis. They still had almost 10,000 settlers there. And you watched through your childhood as the um, Israelis pulled out in 2005. You had the legislative elections. I mean, this all happened in your childhood, right? The elections in 06, the Hamas takeover in 07. Describe for those, you know, typically for most people in the West, they get a sense of Gaza, unfortunately, during one of these wars. Describe for us growing up in Gaza, what life is like there for you as a child and how it evolved as you watched the politics uh, and who controlled the place change through your childhood. Sure, yeah. I will tell you the following. I will tell you that the the only relatively peaceful time we've had in Gaza was between 1994 to uh, uh, 1999, uh, the post-Oslo agreement. And I was a child at that time. I was like, what, five years old or 
six years old, but I do remember it. I do remember the memories very well. For example, uh, I do remember seeing uh, the Palestinian police members everywhere and they have to be scared that we will be bombed or, or something of this nature. I do remember the day when President Clinton uh, came uh, to Gaza with his helicopter and I remember him, you know, I remember even seeing the helicopters uh, from uh, where, where I lived. And then it was the opening of the Gaza Airport in uh, 1998. So there were a sense of hope and a sense of that we're building our state. There is freedom. Palestine will ultimately be free. And uh, that was really, really uh, uh, exciting for many people, including my family. But 2000 and the second intifada started and then violence erupted again. And that the first interaction I always tell people that I had with the Israelis when the Israeli Air Force in 2000 uh, uh, bombed uh, Gaza. Right. So we should just back up here. Politically, what happens? Tensions start to rise between the Palestinian Authority uh, and the Israelis. The Israeli prime minister walks, takes a walk on the Temple Mount next to Al-Aqsa. That sets off what's called the Second Intifada, the Second Uprising, which lasts several years. Yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, in the drama of that, right, uh, Yasser Arafat and and the at the time, Prime Minister of Israel, Hu Barak, were in Camp David here in Washington, talking about final solution, uh, sort of negotiating to state solution, whatever. It failed. It didn't deliver. It didn't work. Right. Uh, Arafat goes back, and Hamas and other more militant groups start moving more toward um, uh, violence um, against the Israelis. And as you said, in the also in the context, is Ariel Sharon visit to Temple Mount, which was right. And I should correct myself; he was the opposition leader at that time. But he yeah. the, anyway, tensions rise, the agreement sort of falls apart, and then the uprising happens. Yeah, then the uprising happened, and then the PA Yasser Arafat, being um, uh, uh, Yasser Arafat, felt that. Unless he also joined the Intifada to an extent and even support certain militancy and Fatah, and I think he was right to a certain extent uh, that he would lose the leadership of the Palestinian people, that Hamas and other groups can can manage to get it. So, so Arafat jumps on there. And as a result, even you know the, the Palestinian Authority infrastructure get bombed by the Israelis and things get really... Uh, bad in Gaza. But yeah, we lived through the Intifada, then we lived through the withdrawal, then we lived through um, Hamas's takeover of Gaza. And it it seemed to me, it, to me, it felt as, as you know, kid growing up in Gaza is that uh, uh, there is a consistent violence that is not stopping. There is a consistent instability that all sort of pushed me to say that, like, my dream is to leave Gaza. Like, that's how I always felt. That's how I, I always thought about, about Gaza. I was there. What was your interactions like? I mean, you saw Clinton from a helicopter. Your experience with the Israelis was was the bombing during the Second Intifada. What did you, as you grew up, what did you learn about Israel? What was your experience? What were your interactions, if at all, with Israelis? This is a good question. And uh, I didn't really have an interaction with Israelis whatsoever. I mean, the interaction I had is the Air Force. It's the bombing. It's the uh, Israeli army killing people. The victories I see of uh, atrocities and uh, crimes that are happening. And these are things I think of. On the other hand, it's the stories I heard from my grandpa. My grandpa before 48 on two jeweler shops in uh one in Ramle, one in Majdal, that he lost. He lost his land. He lost his home. These are towns that are in current-day Israel. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Towns that were in 48 uh, uh, forced to transfer. So 
these are, are, are the stories I heard about the Israelis. And in my mind, uh, as you know, a kid, you, you hear these stories and you experience the bombing and you just come to one rational conclusion that they hate us, they want to kill us. There is no other way to think about it. So that that's that was my interaction with the Israelis. And would you say that that is the typical interaction that most kids in Gaza feel or the sentiment that they have? I would be surprised if anyone thinks something else. Yeah. Because you put two million people in this like almost like an open air prison. You are not allowed to get in and out. People in Gaza who live in the coastal area don't know what a mountain look like, Moshe, believe me. Like I grew up hearing about the concept of mountain, but I never saw a mountain in my life. And that was a time that Gaza wasn't like under huge blockade as now. Like now it's much worse than, I mean... And at that time, we needed a permit to go to Ramallah to visit my grandparents, and we never did it until 2006, I think. Your grandparents are in Ramallah. Yeah. It's typically, if everything was open, it'd be, what, a 45-minute drive, one-hour drive to Ramallah. Uh, but that's located in the West Bank, and you got to get through Israel to get there. Yeah, 45 minutes. It's You have to go through Israel, and you can't do that. So people didn't even saw, see a mountain. So I get to Ramallah, and for the first time, I see a mountain. And only now am I processing the amount of trauma, the amount of pain, the amount of uh, of grievances that people people in Gaza must, must have felt and still feel. And it makes me think that, yeah, it made sense what I felt about the Israelis. Although later on in my life, I would correct that. I would interact with Israelis for the first time. And for the first time, I feel that I could sort of put myself in the shoe of the Israeli for the first time, something that is very difficult for me to say personally and for any Palestinian. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, a lot has been made about, you know, that this begins in education, this begins with what you're teaching kids, etc. And there's, you know, been talk about how Hamas in particular has changed the education system. Can you speak to that at all uh, in terms of what was taught formally at school about the conflict, about Israel, about the region, about the history? The consensus became in Hamas that we want to do gradual Islamization of society uh, in the sense of just making da'wah, calling people to prayers instead of forcing them to pray, for example. The same thing goes with the textbook, etc. So they did not try to change the textbook. They kept it the Palestinian Authority. They kept the civil curriculums, etc. But what happened is that the teachers were replaced. And when you replace the teachers... And that's only in government school. It doesn't apply to honor schools. In the government school at the beginning, I don't know even if now that's applicable or not, Hamas members became the, 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 the teachers all of a sudden. So in a way, what is more dangerous to me is not the curriculum itself. It's what we would, the literature would call the hidden curriculum. Mm-hmm. And the hidden curriculum is what could be controlled more, more by Hamas. But here, I would have to say a few points. That's not applicable to every school. I mean, again, the majority of schools in Gaza are honor schools, and they're not the teacher, etc. are not member of Hamas usually. Maybe you'll get one here and there. Uh, but the government schools are more this way. And this, you, you go to government school, like in my case, only at high school, like after you finish, like what's basic. And there, I think there is danger. I think Hamas tried to push even the idea of uh, there is two hours a week of, of da'wah where they bring, or not a week, I think a month. Or I don't remember the number, so don't quote me on that, okay. of da'wah where they bring the sheikhs and they try to like, you know, preach Islam. Are they trying to effectively convince people, hey, you, you should join the cause? Yeah. It's about violence. Yeah. Actually, it's not like, it's not all violence. To yeah. them, violence is not the uh, the core of their message at the beginning. The core of the message, you got to be like, it's sort of like, 
very much is like repent and come back to Jesus, sort of in in in, in an American context, like repent and come back to Islam. Mm. You know, again, Hamas is is a Muslim Brotherhood inspired, so the very uh, core of what Hassan al Banna, the founder of Muslim Brotherhood, have taught is that the reason of the decline of the nation is our lack of religiosity. It's lack of return to Allah, right? So their core message is come back to Allah, come back to, to, to religion. And then after this, following that, you know, the message of jihad and that part of course. So that's step two. Yeah, that's a step two. But generally, they want to Islamize the society because an Islamist, an Islamic society who's committed to their values is hard to defeat, they argue. So yeah, that's the message. But that message felt made people like myself or not Muslims at school feel isolated and feel um, that even teachers and kids start becoming more um, uh, aggressive towards someone who's like, how dare he not being a Muslim and not believe or believe. So I felt a lot of um, persecution. But let me give you another example of something that really annoyed me as someone who considered himself a Palestinian nationalist at that time is in my school, Yarmouka school, in, in Gaza City, which is a government school, high school, they replaced the national assem in the morning, which we used to like usually get to school. We, 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 they raise the flag as we are standing um, uh, at eight in the morning and we, we sing the national assem of Palestine. It's something that always made me proud. I really like it. And all of a sudden, Hamas does uh, replace it with another song, a song more Islamists that say in state of like singing for Palestine and liberation of Palestine, we are singing about Jerusalem and about Laksa and about Islam versus Judaism, sort of like that the song goes, which means, oh, Jerusalem, we're coming. Oh, Jerusalem, we wouldn't give up to the enemies. And then we would, they, they made us shout, it's our mosque, not their temple. Something that made me furious because to me, like that's the very core of Palestinian nationalism is the national um, anthem, right? And mm-hmm. then you, you're replacing it. So now, again, these I'm talking to you about the first two years of Hamas's rule in Gaza. So maybe things have changed after. I don't think so, but maybe it did. Uh, because at the beginning, Hamas was trying to just consolidate power. So I would assume they're more aggressive about these things. But, but, but yeah, these things were happening and they were very, very much uh, problematic and annoying. Break down, if you can, you know, nearly two and a half million people in Gaza, the public sentiment, you know, people have been trying to get a sense of, okay, who falls in the Hamas camp, who's in the pro-peace camp, who is in the two-state solution versus one state, uh, and, you know, your sense of having analyzed it, having researched it, having lived it, as to break down the population there for us. It's hard to break the population in terms of uh, who is where, right? But like I would tell you, like if you say political party affiliation, I think Hamas is way less than twenty percent of or fifteen percent, like official political affiliation, right? But then when an election happens, probably those who voted for Hamas were 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 more than that. So right, it was closer to forty. Yeah, I mean, yeah, because like you know, Hamas obviously didn't run. As Hamas in the in the election, they run under the name of reform and um, what was it, Islah change and reform, and they had a different campaign. It wasn't so Hamas ran as a change and reform party. Oh yeah, that's yeah. What, that's 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 the coalition they built, and it was it even had a Christian <laughs> in the list. They wanted to look like they are like you know changing and things are different. They even you know. Even majority of people who voted for Hamas, um, and I think the number is about 60% of those who voted for Hamas, also 
said in the surveys that they believe in two-state solution and also said that they believe that the new elected government of Hamas should pursue two-state solution, should be working um, on a two-state solution. Uh, but obviously Hamas did not do that, uh, at least not genuinely. On the public opinion today in Gaza, I think we saw surveys about the day before October 7th, majority of people in Gaza, and I think the survey, is that's why the Arab parameter was published, about 70% of the population in Gaza were opposed to Hamas's um, uh, uh, government. They don't think highly of Hamas's government. And 70% support the continuation of ceasefire with Israel. So that's that's a public sentiment. People don't really uh, support Hamas. Now, after this incredible like war crimes that Israel has committed in Gaza, one would think what would do this do to the public opinion in Gaza? Like this has the potential of completely radicalizing the Palestinian street to wanting revenge, wanting vigency, to feel a sense of no hope, but also thus we want to fight. On the other hand, it could be the people would become more and more disillusioned with Hamas and what they did in October 7, these horrific attacks, and people would come to realize that, well, yes, Israel is committing war crimes, but Hamas is so stupid for triggering these war crimes against us. And I think that what I am seeing is more of the of the second. Of the second, that, that people say, I know what life like was, was on October 6th. I know what life like is now. What happened on October 7th, done by Hamas, basically created the situation that they they'll point the finger there yeah that's for sure the general the general sense in gaza i've been talking to people since they one i've been following accounts in twitter and arabic yeah and that's that's what they're saying but it's very important to understand that there is incredible campaign uh, run not only by hamas but also by their regional coalition to suppress these voices to like they would call you a Zionist, they would go after you, try to completely cancel you. It's well, well organized. And they would even go after the people who are in Gaza on, on social media, etc., to not allow them to to, to voice their uh, their voices outside. Something that I tweeted a lot about, by the way. Yeah, you're, you're very open about it. And, you know, you're providing, one of the reasons I found your account is you're providing nuance and shades of gray uh, and sort of an, you know, the extent an, an honest voice here about the situation, the pluses and minuses of each, at a time where, especially on social media, people are being forced to, you need to choose a side, and you need to be loyal to our side. And I'm curious as to the reaction you might have gotten, Khalil, for, from people on the pro-Palestinian side being like, what are you doing being critical of ourselves? You know, you have to you have to be loyal. Do you get that at all? Have you gotten pushback at all? Um, is it no, difficult I to be a, a voice of nuance at a time of black and white? No, I am. I am getting attacked by people who live outside of Palestine. People who are in Gaza and friends of mine who lived in Gaza and left and still are afraid to speak up because of what they think is is the is the consequences of that could be to them are saying, go for it, Khalil. You're probably proud of you. You think you're doing God work and you should continue to do it. But yeah, there is pushback. And to an extent, to be honest with you, there is an emotional conflict that they go through, right? Like, do I want to make my people look bad? No, of course no. But do I want to compromise my own conscience and my own uh, uh, morals to justify the actions of Hamas, who clearly give no crap about the Palestinian rights and about their safety, even if they have some sort of vision about liberation or whatever. But what is happening today, it's, it's horrific, and I think it's unjust. And the fact that they're willing to suppress voices that criticizes their actions in this war and their actions... Um, to trigger this war 
is really uh, worrying and something that makes me um, want to talk more and more about it. And I would say something about the discourse in the diaspora in general, whether they're, they're the Jewish diaspora or the Palestinian diaspora, is an unfortunate discourse of tribalism. It becomes yeah. so tribalist. There is no way on earth my side could be, you know, the, the wrong side and vice versa. I, it's something I refuse to look at. I choose to be uh, intellectually honest with myself and analytically honest and look at things as uh, as it is. It's actually funny and insane to me to see on the one side the Jewish Zionists in, in the diaspora who were just protesting against this government a few months ago, now saying that this government can do no wrong <laughs> against the Palestinians. And on the other hand, the Palestinians diaspora in the West who don't like right-wing movements, hate Trump and hate any right-wing movement, being okay with the right-wing movement, such as Hamas, who are extremists, who you can't live under them for one day. So it's kind of like tribalism. <laughs> it's kind of like really ironic part of tribalism, actually. You mentioned it. You said you know some of your friends there are uncomfortable speaking candidly about Hamas. We get a sense of what it's like to you know protest within Russia. You know how the people have been dealt with in in the Islamic Republic of Iran. You know North Korea is another story. China is another story. What where would you rate the freedom or lack thereof people feel to speak candidly, and what are the ramifications of speaking candidly within Gaza over the last decade? Yeah, if you are in Gaza, there are different ways for them to suppress you. You could go to jail easily. A lot of people went to jail. They could choose not to send you to jail, but socially punish you in a ways that is much more painful than jail and much more painful than torture, where they spread rumors that you are a spy or collaborating with uh, with um, um, foreign governments or whatever. And this is a psychological torture where no one want to talk to you, no one want to interact with you. So you're not in jail, but you're in social jail. You're an outcast in That's society. It. And it's much worse, painful. And to me, it's actually sad to say that I've been very disappointed by scholars who studied Hamas in these regards, because I read most of the literature on, on the subject in the West, and I found no mention of these uh, techniques or, or what they are doing really on the ground whatsoever. All the, what I saw in the literature was the opposite, was that Hamas is more of a soft authoritarian. Hamas is even less authoritarian than, than the Palestinian Authority. Hamas is moderating, etc. Something that made me, like, really drove me crazy because I, I say to myself, if you spent one uh, month in Gaza and you are someone who knows Arabic and you are not, you know, being guided by what government officials telling you, you will never come to this conclusion. And uh, it's sad that there is dearth of, of information when it comes to these issues and how Hamas used um, these techniques to, to, to suppress people. And it's not that it's Hamas came up with them. They're there in other authoritarian regimes and literature have written about them. And when it comes to Hamas, I think Hamas was... Hamas and the Israeli blockade on Gaza had made it very hard for people to actually access information of what's happening there and thus made the PR campaign of Hamas and their supporters much more well done and powerful, I think. So you were able to eventually head to the West Bank, to Ramallah, where your grandparents are. Talk to the audience about what, how life is different for Palestinians who live there versus who live in Gaza. Sure, yeah. So I left 2009 and, and moved to the West 
to the West Bank. The first thing that is different, despite the continuation of the occupation in the West Bank, that there is no actual blockade. So you would find whatever you need in terms of goods, uh, there is freedom, there is uh, 24 hours electricity, something that does us lacking. In 2009, at that time, it was like an eight hours electricity a day. So all these challenges when it gets uh, when it comes to the Israeli occupation and repression of the Palestinians, uh, when it comes to the local government, also uh, it's it's a more secular government, right? The PLO. So, for example, in the West Bank, you would find alcohol and access to alcohol, something that you can't find in Gaza due to Hamas's uh, uh, regime there. There is more room to to be secular openly and not to be Islamist as in Gaza at that time. So there is all sort of, of differences between both um, Gaza and the West Bank. And in terms of public sentiment there, given the way they live, how do Palestinians feel about, I mean, is there a major difference when you talk to people in Ramallah, you talk to people in the West Bank versus Gaza in terms of how they view Israel or view a, a solution, a two-state solution with Israel? Oh, that's a good question. I don't think there is a huge difference. I think generally they're they're similar or, or closer to each other. Yeah, I think they're, they're 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 both under the same impressions generally. I think one thing that surprised me, and it's happening more now than before, is that people in the West Bank becoming more and more supportive of Hamas than people in Gaza, having lived under the authoritarian um, Palestinian Authority, having also not new and experience what the Hamas rule looked like and what Hamas actual goals look like, more and more people in the West Bank are buying the argument that Hamas is effective, that Hamas is just, you know, was actually working to liberate Palestine, that they could get some results out of there. And that's that's the part that is scaring me about what's what's happening in the public opinion in the West Bank. And it's one of the reasons why uh, Abu Mazen, the Mahmoud Abbas, the head of the Palestinian Authority, uh, the theory is that he hasn't had elections for more than 10 years because he fears that if he had open elections, Hamas would win in the West Bank. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it's unfortunate. Uh, obviously, the way the election works is not you can't separate West Bank and Gaza. It's one geographical area, but with different jurisdiction, right? So if you win in the West Bank, there is a likelihood to win in Gaza too and vice versa. Yeah. But the challenge is of Abu Mazen and the election is that Given the context of what is the, because here's the thing, like all these elections are about, you know, reformation, are about uh, uh, better salaries, are about, you know, healthcare. It's just like any other regular uh, elections in the world. But on the other hand, they are also about liberation because we're not, we're not a state yet. We're working toward this liberation. And what we believe historically, the majority of the Palestinians since the since the 80s is a two-state solution. Now, I mean, it's decreasing, but we always believed in that. The fact that the Palest- that this project of two-state solution is failing in front of our eyes, the settlements are expanding. Mr. Netanyahu is saying to Palestinians, basically, no way you're getting a state. You'll always live under occupation. The the idea that we are still committed to peace, as Abu Mazen or Mahmoud Abbas is presenting, is 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 really making the Palestinians angry and making them feel that it's humiliating that we are committed to peace all the time, but they're not, and thus they turn their face to Hamas. Uh, most of these people are not by ideology Islamist or anything, but they'll vote for the Islamist because they believe that that they can deliver something that Abbas has failed with his peaceful approach. So, you know, it's it's so interesting because you talk to both sides, right? And you talk to many Israelis who are like, we're committed to a two-state, you know, in, in essence, a two-state solution. 
but it's Hamas and these terrorist attacks. If, if they end and they give us security, then they'll get a state. And then, you know, from the Palestinian side, it's like if you end the occupation, you will get security. What perspective has that given you as also you've, you know, met more Israelis and, and start to get their sense of what is the, and I'm not going to, I'm going to put you on the spot here, Halil. What's the, what's the solution to peace here? Yeah, I mean, I still believe two-state solution is the most rational and easier to, to access, right? Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't mean that it's the only solution. If there is a new solution that emerged and that the nature and the grassroots allow for a new solution, even if it's one state, I'll be supportive of that. But today, the uh, uh, nature of the conflict, the nature of the two people too, and uh, what the political culture is, etc., does not allow for natural emergence of a one state, uh, one democratic state. Now, again, back to this whole like, oh, well, if they start, stop terrorism, or if we say if they stop the occupation first, etc. What I would say, what we need is leaders who actually rational and analytically honest with themselves to do the right steps without caring for what uh, the crowds necessarily want. And I know that sounds controversial, whatever, but that's the truth. I mean, you got to be honest to yourself. The crowd are going to be going to be a tribalist crowd. They are. The leader has to lead the crowd. Yeah. Well, and we've seen what happened, right? We saw Anwar Sadat in Egypt after peace get assassinated. We saw Yitzhak Rabin in Israel after making a peace deal get assassinated. And that was one of the concerns Arafat had in terms of agreeing to a final deal was, you know, he didn't want to, suffer the same fate. Yeah, that's a possible interpretation of it, right? And maybe it's true. But I do believe that if someone manages to really get the Palestinian rights in a state and freedom, prosperity, etc., that he will be looked at as hero. I, I just don't think that the Palestinian public are rigid completely. I mean, they get rigid when they see the situation getting worse and worse for them. These opinions change, right? Yeah. And, I mean, look at the data between 2010 until today. Every time when we're serious, there were serious negotiation, the public opinion support for two states increases dramatically. And why? Because they feel, oh, maybe we'll reach it or whatever. But every time Israel just looks back and they say, well, we're not talking to you. Uh, also, uh, the, 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 the numbers de- decreases and, and numbers support for violence increases. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, what's what's the sense of th- this isn't, unfortunately, this is not the first war uh, that you've had Gaza in the past few years. It's the fourth in, in a decade now. What typically happens to public sentiment? I mean, obviously, this war is different. It's more, much more significant than what we've seen in the past. But what happens to the opinion on the street in the aftermath of these conflicts? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's it takes usually a few months for you to get the actual opinions that doesn't have emotions and reaction to the actual war. During the time of war, people become the most hawkish. They become supportive of whatever side they have, yeah. tribalist and, and, and etc. Then it takes about six months to, for their actual opinion to, to, to see it. And usually it means decrease for, for support of war, decrease for support of Hamas, etc. Because what happens is you start getting the results of the war a few months after, and you start seeing that it didn't really help liberate Palestine. It didn't really help um, actualize any concessions from Israel. And even those conditions that are actualized are not, are not, uh, are not really sufficient. Tell me, the, you know, the Israeli strategy here is, you know, they say they've had it with Hamas, that there can be no future for Hamas leading Gaza, 
and this war isn't going to end until Hamas is out of power. Um, is that a realistic notion? And even if it is a realistic notion, what is required for them to get there? And what will be left of the uh, Palestinian sentiment after that? Will it just be uh, Hamas in another form? Is there another group that has the same ideology? Because you can't really kill an ideology. But curious as to the the larger Israeli goal here, which is we're going to eliminate Hamas, is is that possible? And what does that mean? And who takes over the next day? The unfortunate reality here is that the Israelis are not really honest with themselves. For the last 15 years, they've been empowering Hamas, especially uh, the Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. He has been saying it out in the public. Yeah, they, they view them as a counterweight to the Palestinian Authority. Yeah, but not only that, but he says clearly that the Palesti- that if you don't want a Palestinian state, something that Benjamin Netanyahu has committed to, you've got to support Hamas. So he has been supporting it financially, even allowing the Qatari funds to get into Gaza. Yeah. And then it blow up in his face right now, and he has to do something about it. And to survive politically, he says this whole notion of I want to remove Hamas. Although, I, like, if you really dig, I, I would argue if you really dig deep into him, I don't know if he really believes that he wants to do that. Uh, but on the other hand, he says, well, but there's also what, the there's also the feeling that what happened October seventh, you know, the, the massacre, the tragedy, that it has to be avenged. That they have to they have to prevent that from happening, right? There's the security sure, yeah, argument they make as well. The security yeah. argument is there, but like. It, it, like, okay, you're not interested in Hamas being in Gaza. On the other hand, what's your alternative? The, I mean, if he's being rational and honest about security, the best security assessment for him is the Palestinian Authority being there, or some sort of government being there. But he is so committed to, to, to the original idea of preventing Palestinian state that he says it, and he just tweeted about it yesterday, by the way. Uh, that, okay, we remove Hamas, but we're not going to restore to the Palestinian authority there. So what are you going to end up with? An occup- a full occupation of Gaza, an attempt to ethnically cleanse them that wouldn't succeed because Egyptians are against it completely. So what are you going to do with the people there? I really don't know what uh, the Israelis are thinking, where it would lead. Now, the day after Hamas, as such a thing as a day after Hamas, I don't know what that But, means, but is that possible? I mean, is it possible? I mean, how entrenched is Hamas there? I mean, it's obviously possible. What does it mean? I mean, like, what yeah. everything is, I mean, again, what does it mean it's possible or not? Like, like Hamas, as far as government in the north of Gaza right now, is completely destroyed. There is no, you know, Hamas's ability to govern under this these circumstances. But they are still under the tunnels and their military wing uh, is there. Uh, if you're able to, like, even if not to end the military wing of Hamas, to weaken it significantly, uh, I would say that, yeah, it's possible to, but 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 again, if the occupation remains in Gaza, a day after they weaken Hamas or whatever, Hamas will reemerge, yes, because they will want to fight the occupation. If not Hamas, it would be Fatah. If not Fatah, it would be any party in Gaza. Even the seculars would, would want to fight the Israelis. The amount of humiliation happening in Gaza today and on the national sense would only bring about more resistance to the occupation in Gaza. But if in the last day, the occupation withdrawal, and the, let's say, I mean, the Palestinian Authority would, would have reservation on getting in and that, and a certain Arab force gets in to keep law and order, Hamas would find it very hard to convince anyone to fight against their brothers and sisters. And they will probably, you know, put Hamas under control. That's the only rational thing you could do, or even UN forces or whatever. Hamas still 
they might do some incitement against him, but I don't think they will convince the public to support him whatsoever. Without the public support, I think they would they would lose. One question I had, and, and I heard you discuss it before, uh, you know, before we kind of move on to the the solution here, which is, you know, a big discussion that's happened in the you know past uh, month and a half is in regards to uh, Hamas's use of civilian infrastructure, the hospitals, etc. What is your knowledge of that? What is your experience with that? What do you make of of what the U.S. and Israel are saying versus what Hamas is saying? You know, one side saying we don't do any of it, or the other side saying you do it all, and that sort of justifies what we're doing. Uh, what's the reality on the ground there? Sure. Yeah. I mean, like, I think both takes are wrong. <laughs> in the one hand, those who say Hamas does use civilian infrastructure, the, the, the usual conclusion from it that we can target them with no problem, no regard for international rights, uh, international sorry, human rights or international humanitarian rights, both of which explain with details what you should do and what is legitimate or not in this situation. On the other hand, those who say Hamas does not do that, or it's impossible for Hamas to do that, or whatever, so I find it really ironic. I find it hypocritical, because I know for a fact from friends and people who lived through experiences in Gaza that Hamas does build its tunnels under the homes, and their homes were destroyed because of these. I'm curious about that from your friends. Is there a discussion when Hamas shows up and you know is building the tunnel under your home? Is there a fight that happens? Like, please don't do this. You're making my home a target. And, and how does that conversation go? Yeah, for sure. For sure it happens. But but sometimes you don't even realize they're doing it because it comes under your home and they're digging. So the only chance you would know is if you hear the the digging. Oh, so you 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 might be waking up one morning and you're like, there's there's drilling happening under my house. For sure. They don't take your permission. That's That's the issue. So that's also another violation. Uh, but I can tell you, I had this friend, I, I wouldn't say his name, who they built the tunnel under his home. He realizes it's there. He had a fight with them. They never really did anything about it. He even saw them getting out of there. He get a call from the Israelis, 2014, leave your home. He leaves his home. On the way of leaving his home, it's being bombed. His kid get uh, uh, shuddered of a muscle and they get polarized. It, it's in his head. And he's devastated. He's trying to fundraise money to just rebuild his home. Um, no one helped him to rebuild his home. Two weeks after he rebuilt his home, he like worked really hard. He had like what hundred thousand uh, dollar debt, something tremendous. It's like equivalent to a million dollar here, or more actually. He realizes that Hamas rebuilt the tunnel under his home. He goes crazy. He goes to his uh, cousin, who's actually the leader of Hamas in that area. He goes, are you out of your mind? Out of, out of your mind? They bombed the house. You built that tunnel. He's like, none of your business. That's resistance. Just like basically just go fuck yourself. Sorry for my language. And he's devastated. He doesn't know what to do uh, uh, about the situation. And that's a reality that I am afraid so many on our side abroad don't want to talk about because it makes our side look bad. But again, that's not our side. Our side is this guy. Our side is this guy whose tunnel is being built under his home. And our side is this guy whose house has been bombed by Israel. That's our side. That's what we have to stand by. And that's that's the reality of what's happening in, in Hamas. Now, there has been so much unverified claim by Israel about this hospital has this or this hospital has that. We don't know. Yeah. And I don't think we can trust Israeli um, claims that much. But what we know for sure happened in October 7th is that 
Hamas apparently took some of those injured, injured hostages to the hospital, and they got there with their guns, and they got there with, with armored vehicles. And that is wrong, and that's a violation of international human rights and should never have happened. And even if Hamas wanted to treat those hostages, they could have easily talked to the uh, Red Cross and allowed them to transfer them to the hospitals. That's something you tweeted, that basically Hamas put uh, Palestinian lives in jeopardy by their conduct on October 7th. Yeah, and I can tell you, I I have people who were very close to me who were at the hospital that day. They didn't see any of that. They didn't hear any of that. But I I just kept thinking of imagine a, a scenario in which there was the Israelis went crazy and raided or responded and something bad happens there. Like I would lose people who are close to me because of the stupidity of Hamas, and it's something completely irresponsible and shows you to the almost like mafia mentality of how they're dealing with with the situation, no regard whatsoever for how actual conduct should be taken. Um, uh, and that's, that's, that's really annoying. And, and it annoys me that in the West, we are unwilling, that those on my side at least, those who are on the Palestinian side, are willing to call the bullshit this thing is, mm. thinking that this makes the Palestinian looks bad. Well, guess what? Majority of the Palestinians there are hoping for someone to speak for them in a way that criticizes the occupation, but also criticizes Hamas. They're hoping for that, but no one is doing this because everyone is troublous. And I'm trying to, to, to be that voice. Are you, have you uh, gone to the marches and talked to the activists that are out there, particularly the, the non-Palestinian activists, the people who you know, are, are making common cause? Have, have you been out there? Are you having these conversations? <laughs> That's a good question. I, I did talk to them. Because, you know, it's interesting. We we sent a reporter out to one and, you know, we tried to ask certain questions and they got very, you know, like most of these people are American or non-Palestinian, have never been to the region. Yeah, and, I would uh, not. you know, they, they're very uncomfortable trying to speak openly and honestly, right? Because of the tribalism that you talk about. No, here's what I would say. I wouldn't show up to a marsh and try to talk to people. That usually makes people uncomfortable. Imagine. Yeah. Anyone showing up pro Israel march and try to talk to people, then make them uncomfortable again. But on a personal level, I do have friends who are involved in this stuff, and I do have friends who I try to, or not, not even friends, people who I don't know who I reach out to try to talk about uh, with these issues. And most of the time, I find them to be sensible, good people who try to do good. They don't, they're not really bad people or bad actors, etc. But I also find many times, that when it comes to Hamas, etc., there is a sense of misinformation about how much information, how much things do they know, actually. Because again, if even the most serious scholars are not writing about that in their books, they couldn't access this information. How am I expecting an 18 years old college students to get all this information, right? So I do cut some slacks and I do have grace to these people and uh, uh, sympathy for these people. But at the same time, I would like for them to have more nuance and more understanding. And that's, I think, what we're trying to provide in this new organization that I started with, the Agora Initiative that I started with my uh, my Israeli colleague. Yeah, so talk to me about Agora Initiative, how it came about, uh, and the novel nature. It's you with an Israeli business partner. What are the goals? What do you want to do with, with Agora? 
Sure. Yeah. So the goal, uh, it, the way it started is that I met with this guy, uh, Eliezer Weiss. We, we met at Yale. I was giving a talk at Yale, uh, I think in April or something. And he was there and, and, and somehow we, we connected after we got coffee. We start talking about how do we, how do we bring the conversation here in a way that is, honest, analytical, reasonable, and in a way that gets people involved and excited about the Israeli-Palestinian issues again, because that was a time when no one talked about Israel-Palestine, at least on the the high-level policy, whatever, there's some social movement, and no one want to really talk about solutions. They want to talk about it as some form of culture war or whatever. And we came up with the idea of a Gora initiative, where I argued that Israel and Palestine is very important, not only because the Palestinian rights and not only because the Israeli rights, and we need to find solution for that, but because on a way, I believe that fixing Israel and Palestine on a way that respects everyone's rights, in a way that genuinely brings about constitutional democracy will be an opening for democratization in the region, including Jordan, you know, Egypt, etc. And that is the thesis, and that's the, the core argument that we're trying to present at Agora. So what we're doing right now, we're speaking on campuses, we're speaking in different places, trying to present our ideas. Hopefully soon when we launch, we'll do more research, policy papers, etc. We're really excited. Focused on solutions. We're focused on solutions, long-term solutions, we'd call it. How many people are open to listening to that right now? If you, if you were to call people in Gaza or Ramallah, other people would be like, Khalil, I don't want to talk about that right now. I think majority of them don't want to talk about it. They would want to say what we want to see is ceasefire, what we want to see is stopping the bloodshed, etc. But the day after, they will start thinking of that. Yeah. And today, at least among the elites and the intellectuals and even the politicians, there is serious thinking about it. How do we get out of there? That's important. And it's important for us, people like like ourselves, to be out there speaking about what should be done and how do we move there. Because if you don't do this, you allow this sort of more or less uh, groups of nihilists uh, on the right wing of both sides to be leading the conversation, something that, in my opinion, would lead to nowhere but more bloodshed. So is the Israeli notion right that there can be no peace while Hamas is running Gaza and it just, you're... Uh, the argument the Palestinians would make is you're going about it all wrong with this with this war. That's that's an interesting question. Um, I think ultimately Hamas is an obstacle for peace. There is there is no question about that. The question is how do you co-opt this or or jump over this obstacle for peace? Israel yeah. believes it's literally. We don't think it works. I think that there was a lost 15 years of an opportunity. Hamas's only way of recruiting people to even join Hamas is by pointing to the Palestinian Authority and pointing to the other solution and say, look, they tried it for, for, for what? 30 years being peaceful. Diplomacy didn't work. Yeah. Yeah, it didn't work. So come join me. Has Benjamin Netanyahu proved them wrong in the 15 years? I think Hamas would have been undermining Gaza. And a movement within Gaza could have risen again. It's so so yeah. So your argument is the if the Israelis engaged in diplomacy, then ultimately that would have been a more effective argument against Hamas these past fifteen years. Yeah, for sure. Because if you did that, 
And then you run an election, Fatih will win the election. There is no way under earth Hamas would win an election if diplomacy is really working and, and, and Israel is really making concessions to the Palestinian Authority and make them look like they're, they are effective. And then if Hamas loses an election, there'll be illegitimates in Gaza. And then you have to find a way of get rid of them that may include a revolution, may include Palestinian forces and Arab forces getting there. And it wouldn't be as bloody because there is... There is no way, I mean, to be honest, the Arabs or the Palestinians would commit the war crimes that Israel has committed there, and it will be a proportionate to happen in a different way. And if not, if they didn't, then then if they didn't go through election or whatever, then they would lose an illegitimacy in Gaza. So it's a win-win thing. But the problem, again, is that Israel was not interested in that. I think it's not a secret. I mean, all what you need to do is read Bibi's last book, Bibi My Story, and you see it there everywhere. It's like he's proud of it. The the to to have destroyed the two state solution and the hope for Palestinian state, something that he's proud of. And I'm afraid that if he's honest with himself, at some point before he dies, he will regret that to the day um, he will die. And now that you've met Israelis, do you get a sense of their security concerns? That you know why they feel that you know that the continued presence in the West Bank, the blockade around Gaza, from their perspective, is important to preserving their security? I would rephrase, I mean, I would reject the the way, like the question is proposed. I would say that I yeah. I would phrase it in a way, do you get the, the Israeli security concerns? And my answer would be absolutely, I do get it. I mean, I, I understand the fear, I understand the trauma, I understand everything from there. Yeah. Do I understand the... Uh, Israeli measures taken to protect these securities? No, I do not. But do I understand the way through which people think that these measures are protecting them? Yes, I am an empathetic person and I can put myself in their shoe and I understand it. And I always tell my, my Israeli friends, if I know for sure that the checkpoint system or whatever system you're using is providing security to the to the to the Israelis for sure. It's only providing security. I would not be someone to object to it because why would anyone object to that? But we know that what this system is causing is more sense of vigilancy among the Palestinians, more sense of yeah. humiliation, more sense of wanting to get revenge, and that is a problem. But like, let's forget that. Let's. Let's look at the settlements and the presence in the West Bank. The argument is that it's providing security. Right. So when we talk about settlements, just for perspective here, we're talking about almost 400,000 plus Israelis now live uh, in the West Bank. Exactly. Yeah. And they're in a segregated area, exactly. But like for the context, one of the reasons why the, the, the attack on the horrific attack of October 7th has succeeded on Israel was because the entire army wasn't there. The army was protecting the settlements in the West Bank, and that's when Hamas gets in, they're surprised there's not a lot of army even. Yeah. They continued their attack, and that's something the Israelis themselves start realizing. is like, wait a second, we're sending 28 politicians to protect the settlements in the West Bank where there is only two on Gaza who they killed in like an hour or whatever, Hamas, when they got in. So that's, that's, that's not a security argument. But even don't believe me for it. Don't believe the Palestinians. Go to Ehud Barak, who many Israelis would argue, I mean, Ehud Barak is the former uh, prime minister of Israel and also a general himself, a former general, would say it very clearly that the settlements and the conduct of Israel today is very much dangerous to the security of Israel. So there is, I don't see any serious argument yet for the continuation of the occupation or the, the, the settlements 
for the sake of security. The only argument that is made there is ideological, religious, yeah. religious, and that's I'm afraid a very um, um, uh, dangerous and, and fanatic argument. The opposite question then, he is a Palestinian talking to Israelis. What has surprised them most about what you've told them? That they're like, wow, I, I didn't realize that. Because that's one thing that I think for people who don't travel to the region, we're literally talking about in some cases just a couple miles apart, a completely different life. Yeah. That, you know, in certain parts, like literally you could be in Israel or in on the Palestinian side and just a mile over the wall is a completely different life happening uh, that you have almost very little understanding of. So when you talk to Israelis and you describe what what has shocked them the most, what has surprised them the most, what has opened up the most conversations? Yeah, I, I think they're only they're usually fascinated by anything I say because they just not have no reality whatsoever about the other side. Uh, so telling them about the daily life in Palestine and how we're just just quite similar to them and anyone else has surprised them in many ways. Also, when we talk about you know, the narrative and 48 and, and my family and the experiences we have, uh, we've had, sorry, and we have right now, it's it's usually surprised them and, and, and make them uncomfortable. But at some point it gets, uh, they become more aware of that. And to me, it's it's like, I've learned a lot talking to my Israeli friends. I learned about what does it feel to come back to Israel from their perspective when it gets when it comes to religion? But not only when it comes to religion, what does it feel to have a safe home, right? And what does it mean to come out of the ashes of the Holocaust and establish a state? And all of which are really sensible feelings. Something that I I completely understand. It's humane. It's um, it's a human. Uh, uh, desire and reaction, something that they completely get. The only problem for me, though, is that it happened on my expense and something that you don't see, obviously, because in their story, I don't really necessarily exist in the in the in that space. So I I, I got to learn about uh, the bane of the Holocaust. I got to learn um, about the tragedy that have happened in Germany. I got to learn about also. Uh, other stuff that they faced in the Arab world. Uh, so it's it's a process of learning, and I'm I'm very grateful I went through it. I'm very grateful that we continue this conversation. My my me and my Israeli friends, despite that we disagree on a lot of things. Yeah, you know, it's it's the education of history is so important, and in so many places around the world, you tend to learn a certain narrative, right? And you know, 1948 is so interesting because for the Israelis, it's a fulfillment of a you know a 2,000 year old dream coming out of the tragedies of what would ha- what was happening in the Holocaust and before. And and for the Palestinians, it's it's the Nakba. It it 48 is a tragedy for them. Yeah. And, and no one wanna see the other story, right? I mean, it's very rare that you find people want to see it. Or another way, like you could see it, but like the reason why you don't want to see it is that you feel that if you saw it, you sort of undermine your very much your pain, right? I mean, yeah, and, and I'm like paraphrasing someone who said it, like a Palestinian uh, writer. I mean, same issue we deal with. I don't know how much you've got a sense of here in America in terms of um, understanding that we learn a certain sense of our history. But then over time, especially in recent years, there's been a reality check on why America is where it is today and who it came at the expense of. And that's a very uncomfortable thing. It's been fascinating. I, I don't know if you've you know gotten a sense of the German education system and, and how it's one of the few countries around the world where they've made a point of learning about some of the evils committed um, in their own country, especially in World War II, etc., it's a very unique example of of education in that way. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So, 
looking forward here, you know, watching what is unfolding right now in Gaza, uh, what's unfolding with the war right now, you have started this Agora initiative focused on solutions. What gives you hope that those solutions, you know, are realistic, uh, can happen, especially given where we sit right now? Yeah, I mean, if I'm to say that in the short term they would work, I would be, I would not be an honest person. I think it's a long term thing. And what makes me optimistic that they would work is that the solution should be found. And I think that the solution we have is the most reasonable one to, to, to actualize on the ground. But it would take a while, I'm afraid. And I hope it's not a generation, but it would take a while to er- not erase, but to like, make sense of the human tragedy that is unfolding in Gaza today. When we're talking about about uh, almost 15,000 uh, people were uh, massacred in Gaza, uh, the death, the tragedy on the Israeli side, also the memory of the horrific attack on the uh, October 7th, where about 1,200 were killed. It would take time to process this pain. It would take time to get more rational about this whole thing. But my hope is that we'll find leaders who are willing to lead us, despite this pain, to a place of peace, because that's 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 the only way. That's the only way we can do it. As far as short-term solutions, you know, there's been a lot thrown about by the U.S. in particular, taking lead here, saying, you know, we need um, Arab governments, we need Western governments to come in there for a rebuilding effort, uh, et, et cetera sort of the, the day after in Gaza. Well, how realistic are, are these various notions and what the people of Gaza say about what they would want the day the ceasefire starts? Again, the question is not whether we would agree to Arabs coming or not coming or whether the Arabs would agree to coming or not. The question, again, is like how much of the mess that Israel causes, it's the responsibility of the Arabs and the Arab states to, to fix. Israel can think and assumes that somehow they can get to wherever they want, whether it's Lebanon or Gaza, make a mess, withdraw, and then it's not my responsibility anymore. Now, the Arabs have said they're willing to do that. The Arabs have said they're willing to get uh, to Gaza or the West Bank or whatever to provide security. But they're willing under one condition, and it's an important condition, that this would happen in a context of two states, in a context of ending the occupation. So the horrific attack that happened on October 7th is horrific, but one has to understand that this is also in a context of 55 years of occupation, of oppression, of Israel um, not ending its uh, never-ending occupation. And, and I'll stop you there because the Israelis would say, listen, Khalil, we got out of Gaza in 2005. What occupation are you talking about? That's that's just, yeah, just nonsense, right? <laughs> like it's so, like, so as far as you're concerned, the blockade itself is occupation? Of course, but Okay, I mean, the, the Gaza, the, the, Israel controls the very civil list. I mean, like, not how to say it, so Sigil and Medani. It's like, the, if you have a baby in Gaza and he has to get an ID number, Israel issues this number. You cannot travel out of Gaza without an, an Israel issuing this number. So what the heck an end of the occupation means? But the blockade, the uh, uh, fishing ability uh, in Gaza is controlled by Israel. Effectively, everything in Gaza... The, is, is controlled by Israel. The sky is controlled by Israel. So it doesn't mean anything. But not only that, you don't get to just end the occupation in Gaza and call it a day. Gaza is part of a bigger people in the West Bank, and they're one unity. You want to call them Gazan people and end it? No, it wouldn't work. We wouldn't accept it. We're not dumb. So it's, it's, it's much more complicated than that. You want to end the occupation once and for all. There is no sort of division 
like there is no division between Gaza and the West Bank to end occupation. So what we are saying, we're not rigid, and the Arabs are not even rigid. They're not saying, oh, we wouldn't do it unless the occupation ended all at once. We are saying, show us a map, a map of five years, two years, three years, ten years of when you will end this occupation and put actual leverage and actual international guarantees for it to end. And the Arabs will come and do it, despite that it's actually unfair for them to pay for what Israel creates. But we're, they're willing to do that if Israel is interested in long-term solution. Now, again, the problem is that this Israeli government is unready and they wouldn't do it. My hope is a new Israeli government emerges soon and that uh, this government will be more reasonable and they will, be, they will understand the opportunity the Arabs are presenting them. Because this doesn't come only with fixing Gaza issue. This comes with fixing the entire Israel-Middle East issues because once this is fixed, all the Arab states, all of them, imagine, said that we will recognize Israel fully since 2002. Thank you for taking the time to chat here. I, you know, I appreciate all the nuance you're bringing. And, you know, I, I have several more. Actually, I have two more questions for you. One, as Palestinians watched the past few years, you know, what they call the Abraham Accords, deals made with Morocco, with Bahrain, with the UAE, uh, and potential peace talks with Saudi Arabia, as Israel and, and more Arab countries were opening up diplomatic relations. What was the feeling amongst Palestinians uh, about what that meant? And in particular, the idea was, as they were negotiating with the Saudis most recently, the Saudis would come in and part of the deal with the Saudis would be a, a huge investment. So was there hope there? Or was there the feeling that uh, we're being forgotten by our Arab brothers? Yeah, I think the feeling was more of that we're being forgotten by our brothers. There were very few optimistic people who thought that uh, this could bring something good. And I was one of them. And I would say I was mistaken. And I, 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 I regret that I have said that. For example, when the uh, Emiratis deal happened, I said that it's good because it stops the annexation of the West Bank on the one hand. And on the other hand, maybe this would moderate the views of the Israelis who are becoming more and more anti-Arab completely and that seeing an Arabs who are friends with them would make them more friendly toward the Palestinians. But this never happened. And, and the Israeli society kept getting more radical to the extent that they uh, elected Bingvir. And I thought that the Arab society too would accept more and more the idea of a, of a Jewish state or, or not, not even the idea of Jewish state, of a Jewish presence in uh, the Middle East, but this didn't happen also because these are autocrats who doesn't really represent the people overall. So I am afraid that these uh, uh, Abraham Accord agreements did nothing uh, uh, in, in practical to solve the Israeli-Palestinian thing. But have the Saudis succeeded in actually bringing a Palestinian state on the deal in exchange for dermalization, that would be a uh, a deal breaker. But this is again goes back to the fact that since 2002, the proposal is all Arab states would normalize for a Palestinian state. And I think that's still on the table, will always be on the table. It's on the Israeli end to, to decide on this. How can people uh, help Agora Initiative? How can they learn more and uh, what can they do to help? We will have a website soon. It's uh, It will be www.theagorainitiative.org. I like it's not up yet, but it will be soon. We have a Twitter and Facebook pages also coming next week. It's Agora Initiative. It's just without the. It's just Agora Initiative. Agora A G O R A. We'll put a link um, in the show notes. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah, and you can just follow me on Twitter. I mean, you can put the link to it. It's Khalil Sayer or Khalil at Khalil Jurius. That's that's the name. Yeah, we'll um we'll post a link to that. Khalil does a good job of. Listen, I think a lot of people have you've been talking about tribalism a lot in this conversation, and I think that you know ultimately one of the things that you do is you make people feel uncomfortable on both sides, and 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 you try to you try to give people a dose of reality from your perspective about what's going on. That is what we're trying to do. And I'm glad people feel uncomfortable because I think feeling uncomfortable is what will lead you to truth usually. If you're always feeling comfortable, I'm afraid you're not really seeking truth. Well, you know, Khalil, in the age of social media, we get to find our pockets, our bubbles (laughs) that make us feel comfortable all the time. Nobody wants to be made to feel uncomfortable anymore. That's unfortunate. (laughs) Well, uh, I appreciate your honesty. I appreciate your perspective. And I, I hope that ultimately this violence can end very quickly and your family continues to be safe uh, in Gaza. Thank you, Moshe. That was really great. I want to thank Khalil again for that conversation. We look forward to having him on the podcast um, in the future as we continue these conversations about the Israel-Palestinian conflict. Before we leave, just a reminder that if you enjoy what we're doing here at Mo News, you want to support independent journalism, these additional podcasts, our 24-7 feed, consider joining Mo News Premium. Right now, it's just $7 a month over at mo.news slash premium. It supports what we're doing here at Mo News and also gives you access to a special premium podcast, as well as a members-only Instagram account where we answer your questions about the headlines and do deep dives on a variety of subjects, including all of the 2024 presidential candidates. Again, that's just $7 a month or two months free on the annual package, $70 a year over at mo.news slash premium. See you guys.